This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. I'm a fan of country music, largely because usually it's about an America that I kind of wish we all lived in. Of course, country music is American, and that means it's the real America. Here's the headline from the Rolling Stone. Culture wars are tearing close-knit country music community apart. It turns out that culture wars have touched upon country music as well. Is that something new, or is it something that's kind of always been true? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So I found the Rolling Stone story to be remarkably balanced, given that it's Rolling Stone. (laughs) But what does it get right, and what's wrong or missing from the story? Well, you'd have to be completely tone deaf or blind, or all of your senses have to be whacked out to ignore the fact that there are political dramas going on in the world of country music, because country music is in America. And Country music is in a part of America that currently, or it's dominant in a part of America, that is currently greatly estranged from the deep blue media centers of the East Coast and the West Coast. So country artists are, to some degree more than ever, caught in a kind of a pressure vice between the realities of appealing to the country music fan base and the kind of social media culture that surrounds it. Yet at the same time, they can't live their lives while ignoring the role of the major television networks and even prestigious institutions like the New York Times, National Public Radio, etc. They're caught. I mean, they live their lives one step away from being either canceled somehow because their careers depend on major corporations, which are often linked to the dominant entertainment mass media of America by billions of dollars worth of chains, or they don't want to turn into kind of like Bud Light with a backbeat and a steel guitar and do something that gets them completely cut off from the great mass of country music fans, and even to some degree, the more traditional forms of country radio. Now, I realize that a lot of country radio is just pop stuff. I mean, and Taylor Swift, to some people, remains, quote-unquote, a country star. But yet, that isn't the reality at the level of AM radio in the state of Tennessee, you know, where I live in the mountains or in the hills of Nashville or all the way over to the red clay gospel blues world of Memphis. That's just not the reality of radio is not top 40 pop stuff. So anyway, Rolling Stone, of course, only sees the political. 
This is all about current political divisions. Yet if you dig down into the article, you'll notice that a very high percentage of the political, quote-unquote, battles are about the sexual revolution. And in particular, the story, it's, it's mentioned over and over that there are disputes about how to handle gender and transsexualism. And so that should sound like normal American culture at this point. It should be surprising that it hit country as well. But I guess my thesis for this conversation is that some of the boldest and most political and populist geniuses in the history of American pop culture were country stars in previous generations. And I guess I'm thinking that it was easier to be a country star when you lived in the American South that was defined by Southern Democrats, a kind of morally conservative populism was still possible, and call yourself a populist or even in some ways a progressive Democrat. I'm always driven back to kind of what would Johnny Cash do? I mean, obviously you have Merle Haggard, and you have all kinds of stuff involving the great Hank Williams. You've got politics in country music, but to me the transcendent artist who covers the whole range of what's going on in country music and the subjects of country music and kind of the good creative tensions within country music, that person is Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash at times in his life was intensely political and took stands that were quite controversial. But this is also the man who would stand up at least once a year and give his testimony at a Billy Graham crusade. And both of those figures were Johnny Cash. And I think that Rolling Stone misses that element of a lot of what's going on in country music. Which leads me back to a quote that I know I've shared with our listeners before, but I'm going to read it again because to me it's the summary of all of this. It's the perfect way of stating it. It's a Johnny Cash quote when he was asked to describe what he valued the most in life and in his music. Johnny Cash gave the following answer, and this is a verbatim quote. I love songs about horses, railroads, land, judgment day, family, hard times, whiskey, courtship, marriage, adultery, separation, murder, war, prison, rambling, damnation, home, salvation, death, pride, humor, piety, rebellion, patriotism, larceny, determination, tragedy, rowdiness, heartbreak, and love. Oh, and mother and God. Now, you can write a lot of songs about that list. And you can write a lot of great songs about that list. And my point is that Rolling Stone doesn't know as much about country music as Johnny Cash did. So is this historical amnesia regarding the fact that, yes, you're absolutely right, there has been, I think of another one, Willie Nelson. Oh, yeah. Intensely political characters who've still managed to keep a fan base and sell records 
for decades and decades in the case of both Cash and Willie Nelson. Is Rolling Stone just kind of have a case of amnesia about that, or do they actually believe the culture war started six years ago? Well, I don't know. I guess they think that if Johnny Cash smokes weed and is politically liberal on some issues and not others, that that gospel music set he puts in every single show he does doesn't mean anything to him, and that he doesn't think that doing his classic gospel numbers with a church piano at the heart of it all doesn't have something to do with the lives of fans. And I think here's the key word, fans that he still respects. It's not just that he wants their dollars. He respects the lives of those people. And Johnny Cash clearly did that as well. Another quote that I love about this was during my first time I lived in East Tennessee, drove over to Nashville, and spent an hour at the end of the day interviewing the late Naomi Judd, whose life had a tragic end, but had a lot of other twists and turns in the middle, and a lot of them linked to what was clearly a sincere faith in her, as well as her struggles with depression. And what I thought was interesting, when I told her what is this dynamic in country music? She laughed with that unique laugh of hers and said, in country music, artists have to sing, quote, about the all of life, the good and the bad, about Sunday morning as well as Friday and Saturday night. And you had to be able to get up on stage and sing like you knew something about Sunday morning as well as Friday and Saturday night. I also loved this quote from her. This is a direct quote. People know that Winona was conceived when I was 17 and unmarried. They've got to know that living all over America like I did with two kids during the U-Haul at years, some pretty hairy things went down. But she was convinced that her fans forgave her because they identified both with her struggles and with her prayers for help. And there's that dynamic again within country music. And I don't think you see any signs of that in the Rolling Stone story. I think they honestly think everything in life is essentially political. And I don't think that describes the worldview of the great majority of country music fans. Yes, politics is real. Yes, morality is real. Yes, religious faith is real. Yes, all of that gets bundled up together when you're talking about marriage and family and divorce and abortion and sex and whatever, and you can get into lively fights about it. But all of life is still seen through a lens that includes the religious component that you heard in that great Johnny Cash credo, can we call it? So what else stood out to you from the Rolling Stone piece? Well, I think that to some degree we're watching a case study unfold, and they mentioned it toward the end, but I just went and checked again, and the Oliver Anthony anthem, Rich Men, North of Richmond, when you go to YouTube and you type in the letter R in the search engine, all you need, at least on my, all of my computers, is you type R, and Richmond North of Richmond comes up. And it's currently at 63 
million views on YouTube. And I thought it was fascinating how quickly this troubled young man's life got politicized. It's Once again, it's what the press has to do. So there was an interesting moment the other day that to me is a part of the story of Oliver Anthony. You could have put this toward the end of the Rolling Stone piece and captured another dimension of this subject and about him not wanting to be politicized. The Republicans claiming his song is an anthem and him saying that's crazy because the Republicans are in power in Washington, D.C., so my song is about them as well. And so then people said, oh, that means he's a Biden supporter. And he said, no, (laughs) I'm not a Biden supporter. I'm trying to talk about the lives of impoverished people in Appalachia. But I would recommend – this may seem like a strange thing to do for your audience – I would recommend that people seek out the interview on YouTube on the Joe Rogan Show, the most powerful video podcast in the world. And Oliver Anthony went on to the Joe Rogan Show. And instead of traditional things like downing a bunch of bourbon or smoking weed with Joe Rogan and his kind of countercultural libertarianism, Oliver Anthony took his Bible, got his Bible out, and basically walked Joe Rogan through his conversion experience and how whatever is going on in his life is rooted to his decision to get down on his knees and give up and, in his view, cry out to God for help, that his life and his family, that he would not live a life that was out meaning or worth, and that he could do something with his abilities. Now, that doesn't happen on Joe Rogan all the time. He then went into a setting that would probably be considered more sympathetic or whatever to his point of view. He went on the Jordan Peterson show. Now, there's a completely different type of audience. And he goes on to Jordan Peterson, and what does he do again? Yes, he talks about his music. Yes, he talks about poverty and quaaludes and opioids and whiskey and struggles and all of that. But he also went on to Jordan Peterson and gave his testimony and quoted the Bible and talked about that side of his life. So I agree with you that the Rolling Stone article includes a lot of very good material if you're only interested in the political angle of the tensions within country music. But if you're only interested in the political tensions in country music, I would argue that means you're not actually interested in country music. And that's my bottom line. So this is a classic get religion case of a major, especially in popular culture, influential institution in our mass media that just doesn't get it. To use the great image from the liberal Baptist and CBS commentator Bill Moyers, who once told me, he said, the mass media tends to be tone deaf when it comes to the music of religion. And that's what I get when I read this Rolling Stone article. The article is tone deaf. It doesn't hear the moral and cultural and religious content 
or the frame around this picture of this country music dispute, and thus they missed the point. So, Terry, let's talk about Dolly Parton, who has managed in a lot of ways to kind of skate the knife's edge on the culture. She remains an icon of country music, and yet she's also a gay icon for decades and doesn't have much to say when it comes to politics. Well, she a couple of times has been asked to get involved in politics, and people have attacked her for failing to get involved in politics. I mean, this happened during the Bush era, for example. And, of course, it came up during the Trump era. And I think Dolly uses a word a lot that I think should be kind of one of the mantras for this talk. Dolly talks over about the fact that she loves her audience and she respects her audience. And she knows that she has people in her audience that wouldn't get along, but that she doesn't want to cut any of them off. So thus you hear her make her quotes about going to a Dolly Parton drag queen show and that she probably would have placed fifth or sixth, you know, if she got up on stage. And you hear her do her Dollyisms and stuff. Yet at the same time, if you ever see the woman talk about anything in life and in her past, the the references to the Bible and religion and hymns and her family is just soaked into everything she talks about. And I think Dolly is just simply open about the fact that she isn't going to go there, that she doesn't want to blow up that rickety bridge between those two realities in American life. I think you'd, you'd have to say Dolly also knows that a large part of her superstardom is based on positive media coverage. But I found it fascinating that when, I believe it was National Public Radio or, or American Public Radio, did a lengthy series on Dolly Parton, they tried to argue that gay and lesbian tensions were at the heart of a song like Jolene and at the heart of her music. And they didn't deal with the religion in her life at all. So you were just open about Dolly's popularity on the cultural left. I guess what the point of all we're saying is if conservative country music fans can face kind of the tensions and the dichotomies within Dolly and her fan base and try to be accurate about them, and discuss them openly, intelligently, why can't the mainstream press offer that same kind of respect for the other side of a figure like Dolly Wood's past? I also want to stress that these issues have been... We've had blow-ups in recent decades between artists on the left and artists on the right. And Didn't Mark Hemingway create a buzz the other day in social media by arguing that the popularity of Taylor Swift is basically the end of American culture as we know it. And he was being provocative, but a part of what he was saying is that what she represents in tween girl culture and in the sexualizing of pop music, etc., cuts against the country bluegrass folk roots that she comes out of. So there it is again. Then you have the amazing case of the band previously known as the Dixie Chicks, who are simply the Chicks. And they got kicked off a lot of country radio by attacking 
President Bush. So you've had that case in the past. You've got tensions right now surrounding what Amy Grant and her husband Vince Gill believe or don't believe, and yet there isn't a show that they do that doesn't have strong religious content and Christian content and hymnody. And Vince Gill will always be known as the man who wrote the great anthem about the death of his brother and one of his friends, Go Rest High on That Mountain. And you can sing Go Rest High on That Mountain at a church pulpit without a note of irony of any kind whatsoever. So once again, there's the formula again. So I hope our listeners are not hearing me deny at all the complexity of this quote-unquote country culture war. But what I'm saying is you don't help readers understand it by pretending that it's all politics and that's it. That's not the way you get any understanding out of this. Could part of it also be the cynicism that's rampant in, in our culture finally turning on country music because it's now you can go on TikTok and see dozens of videos from stand-up comics who are sending up country music and are basically saying it is a cynical business that if you think this guy drives a, a rusty pickup truck back to his mansion in Nashville, you're, you know, I've got a bridge I'd like to sell you. Could part of it be that? Well, I've always argued that Nashville is the only place we have in America where actual multi-billion dollar level pop culture power exists in the heart of the Bible Belt. So even if Nashville is to Tennessee, what, say, Austin, another music capital, what Austin is to the state of Texas, kind of the city that doesn't fit as well as the rest of it, and there is that tension again, even though that's a true statement about Nashville, you've always had struggles between the realities of the friendship and the smiling, happy faces of country music, et cetera, and the way female artists were treated until Dolly Parton started her own company and stood up to the powers that be. Yes, all of that's real. Welcome to the world that is sinful and fallen, and both glorious and fallen at the same time. But once again, the point is we don't hear about that happening as much in Hollywood or in Broadway because of where they are. Broadway is New York. Hollywood, to some degree, is in L.A., even if many stars are fleeing Hollywood and California and trying to get out to kinder, safer, more beautiful parts of America or calmer parts of America to raise their families. That would be a good feature right there, by the way. But my point is Nashville is where the two worlds meet. And there are sincere believers on the left, and there are sincere believers on the right. But to me, the best way to understand country music is to back away from the top 40 charts and look at the artists who have sustained careers of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Look at those artists. Look at the connections between them and their fans, and you'll find religion 
almost always plays some component in that mix and that it's sincere. Whether you're talking about Loretta Lynn, Johnny Cash, or even someone as interesting and complex as one of my favorite artists, which is Alison Krauss, someone that I interviewed back when she was a teenager in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and won a fiddle competition, and I worked for the local paper and interviewed her. And I once asked her why she passed up a multi-million dollar contract to become a pop star and instead stayed with a bluegrass sound with her band Union Station and kept on the road playing to her fans. And I asked her why she did that. And she said, do you think the pop audience is going to care for me when I'm 60? Do you think I'll be able to stand at a microphone on a stage and the audience will still want to know what I think and what I feel and what I believe when I'm in my 60s if I take the pop route? And you know what? There is so much truth about bluegrass, folk, blues, gospel, country music, and all the stuff that we now call Americana music, the stuff that isn't on Top 40 Radio. That's still, to me, where the heart of country music is found. And if you go there, you're not going to be able to avoid the religion component. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.